What a delightful morning it has been already to be together among God's people to sing the praises of our triune God. So thank you for, to all of you who have uh, lifted our hearts, encouraged us, pointed us in song and testimony in scripture reading and in prayer to our great and, and glorious God. I, uh, for some reason, when I plug my phone into my car, it, it picks up the 20 Schemes album. So every time I turn my car on, I hear bagpipes because that's the first song on the, uh, the album. And it always, it has what so happened this morning, and it always reminds me of this phrase, uh, which we don't use anymore. But uh, the phrase is this, uh, the kirk goes in. The kirk is the word for church. And uh, I often think of that on a Sunday morning when the church is gathering. The building isn't the church. The church comes in. It's the people. And what a delight for us that it is to do that this morning. Uh, and I trust that's your sentiment, your conclusion as well. Uh, before I press on with uh, the preaching of God's word, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge by God's grace, how well Pastor Caleb did in his ordination council this past Wednesday. Congratulations, brother. Wonderful. We look forward to making that official in an ordination service, Lord willing, sometime in the next few weeks. It will likely be in May. And uh, on those occasions, there's a charge given to the church, there's a charge given to the candidate, and we will pray and rejoice together in that as the people of God. So he worked hard. God helped him greatly. And uh, we're thrilled at the outcome. So look forward to that day. As we do continue in worship this morning, I'm wondering if you've ever heard the phrase, a severe mercy. On the surface, it sounds like a contradiction in terms. How could something severe be merciful? And how could something that is merciful be severe? The phrase is actually the title of a book written by Sheldon Vanocken, who lost the love of his life, Jean Davis, following an illness that eventually took her life after she converted to Christianity. In the book, Sheldon wrestles Someone summarizes through what to make of the God who took his wife from him. Much of this wrestling is recorded in letters between Vinokin and C.S. Lewis, who was a friend to both Sheldon and his wife. The phrase, a severe mercy, actually belongs to Lewis, whom Sheldon exchanged letters with during his struggles with faith and with grief. Again, summarizing the, 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 the situation, someone says, Lewis wrote that he believed Vinokin's struggles had their root in the fact that he had made an idol of love, and it was killing his faith. Lewis said something in this scenario would inevitably have to die, the idol or the faith, and he said the worst option was for their faith to die while he and his wife kept on living. So Lewis wrote to this man who had lost his wife, who was wrestling with Christianity, and says, you have been treated with a severe mercy. Now, whether or not you would agree with Lewis in this situation is besides the point. The phrase, a severe mercy, is what I'm after. And I believe it's a phrase that resonates with the experiences of God's people throughout the centuries. 
In Psalm 119, verse 71, we read, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The ancient sage wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Paul wrote of being so utterly burdened beyond his own strength that he despaired of life itself. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that, he said, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And elsewhere, as I'm sure you know, he experienced a thorn in his flesh. A messenger of Satan, he said, sent to harass him to keep him from becoming conceited. And he pleaded with God that God would take this away. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. These were severe experiences. Yet there was mercy in them. God, you see, is in the reconstruction business, recreating us into the image of his beloved son. But this necessitates that he is also in the demolition business first, tearing down our old identities, even if that means affliction, so as to establish new identities in the place of the old. As we continue in Genesis this morning, where Jacob wrestles with God, we are confronted with the following. I'm summarizing our passage with this sentence. God humbles us in the failures of our old identity before blessing us to prevail in our new identity. Yahweh brings low the old us before graciously and favorably raising us up a new us, God humbles us in the failures of our old identity before blessing us to prevail in our new identity. So this reality of God's severe mercy may resonate exactly with where you are this morning. God, by His Spirit, may have you in the throes of conviction because of your sin, and with all your might, you are resisting. This morning, I hope and I pray you see what happens when you give in, so that you do give in to see the blessing God would give you in a new identity through Jesus Christ. For others, God, by His Spirit, may be dealing with remnants of the old you that you have rebuilt on top of what he is doing or that you've wandered off to try to reclaim and you're not willing to let go of them and there's need for further renovation. So brother or sister, I hope you are encouraged to lean into what God is doing, however hard that may be, rather than away from what God is doing. And yet some others might be in a bout of suffering by the sovereignty of God so that he can continue to do his work in you. He humbles us. He brings us low 
But in this so-called severity, there is much mercy. I hope and pray you see and trust that this morning. Let's open to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to read verses 1 to 32. Work through the text and see how this is drawn out from Jacob's experience with God on the way back into the promised land. So Genesis 32, the whole chapter, it's page 27 on the Blue Bibles. If you need to use one of those, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that, open it to page 27, and take that with you and read it, that you might hear about Jesus Christ and have life in his name. So Genesis 32, let me pray briefly before we handle God's word. Let's bow together. Lord, it is not by might nor by wisdom that your purposes are carried out by human beings, but by your spirit. And so would you give a greater measure of your spirit, even now, Lord, we pray for the preacher and for the hearer of your word, that it might go forth with power and transform lives as a result. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 32, beginning in verse 1, says this. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 10 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. 
He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with a present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me, or literally that he will lift his face. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Twenty years prior to what we have just read, Jacob went from the proverbial frying pan into the fire. Fleeing his enraged, murderous brother Esau after swindling him out of his birthright and blessing, Jacob gets majorly burned after running into the arms of his treacherous uncle. There, the deceiver is deceived, and what was supposed to be a short stay to give Esau time to cool off ended up as 20 years of hardship. Yet through all of this, in God's providence and covenant faithfulness, Jacob is blessed with 11 sons and a daughter and an accumulation of significant wealth. Yahweh delivers Jacob from his uncle Laban, vindicates him before his uncle Laban, and establishes Jacob without doubt as his, as his covenant partner. But now that he's out of the searing fire, he's back into the heat of the pan, which has been simmering for a long time. Jacob's past is about to catch up with him, and the threat of Esau's vengeance is very real, large, looming large in Jacob's mind. And it's through these circumstances that God's grace, God's Steadfast love, God's covenant faithfulness are on display, humbling Jacob in the failures of his old identity before blessing him to prevail with a new one. From the text, there are two ways we can expect God to humble our old identities as we trace God's dealings with Jacob. The first way is this. 
God humbles us in the schemes of our old identity so that we cry to him. God brings our plans to nothing so that at the end of the day we have no option but to turn to him and him alone. God humbles us in the schemes of our old identity so that we cry to him. And the means that God uses to humble humble Jacob are external and they are internal. Externally, there is the threat of physical harm. The reality of this is hinted at in the divine camp that Jacob encounters as he leaves his uncle in verses 1 and 2. On the way out of the promised land, you might remember, Jacob was given a dream where he saw what he called the house of God, which is Bethel. And then on the way back into the promised land, Jacob is given a vision of a camp of angels in a camp, those ministering spirits God sends to help those who are to inherit salvation. Most of the time, they are unseen, though they are very real. And as Pastor Caleb put it excellently in his ordination council on Wednesday, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no doubt that we will praise God upon learning of all the ways he sent these warriors of light for our benefit. Perhaps even now. Some contend for us against the disruptive efforts of the kingdom of darkness as the word is preached and someone is baptized here this morning. The vision of these angels was no doubt a confidence boost to Jacob upon his return, yet at the same time they also no doubt remind Jacob of the 20-year-old conflict, for after all this seems to be an angelic military camp, guardians of the promised land, just as the cherubim guarded the way to the tree of life on the east of Eden. Jacob is in a battle. Esau is a threat. And Jacob tries to mitigate this by sending messengers ahead of him in verse 3, instructing them in verse 4, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. Notice the language. My lord Esau. Your servant Jacob. Note also the subtlety. You omits the reason for why he went to Laban in the first place. But he's seeking to humble himself. He goes on in verse 5, I've got oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord, there it is again, in order that I may find favor in your sight. That's what Jacob seeks. Grace from Esau despite stealing his birthright and his blessing. But it's not going to go according to plan as Jacob understands. In verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Uh-oh. In verse 7, Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed. He is freaking out, losing his mind at the prospect of Esau bearing down on him with 400 men. But this reaction seems to have more to do with the state of Jacob's conscience than the reality of Esau's response. Think carefully with me for a moment. If Esau wanted to destroy Jacob in a flame of vengeance, do you really think he would have sent the messengers back with news that he was coming with 400 men? Do you think Esau 
would give his scheming brother a chance to concoct a plan to swindle him out of his long-awaited revenge? I don't think so. But that's the way Jacob reads the situation. In verse 7, he divides the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes and attacks the one camp, well, at least another one will escape. Bruce Waltke writes, a bad conscience may cause one to misinterpret another's good for evil. Jacob's condemning conscience for his treatment of his brother led him to misinterpret Esau's coming. Bad behavior leads to bad feelings. In simple terms, we taught our children when they were very little, bad boys are sad boys, good boys are happy boys, bad girls are sad girls, Good girls are happy girls. Such is the power of our God-given conscience over us. And Jacob's is in overdrive due to his past actions. So there's this external threat perceived by Jacob, but there's also something going on inside of him. It's incredible, isn't it, that a guilty conscience can so distort our view of reality that we cannot see straight? Incredible, isn't it, that the feelings of wrong we've done and haven't dealt with are no respecter of time? We can be so gripped by the guilt of sin that we committed 20 years ago that it can feel like it was committed about 20 minutes ago. And even now, your conscience might be disturbing you over known or hidden sins that have not been confessed to God or that we have not sought forgiveness from others for. Now, though this may seem as torture to us, it is actually a gift of God. What we might call severe, God calls a mercy. As he works to tear down our old identity, that he might give us a new one in his place. A guilty conscience alerts us to the fact that our sinful actions condemn us before God. We are guilty before God and our God-given conscience accuses us of such. And shame alerts us to the fact that our sin is something that we actually should be ashamed about. Jacob knows he's guilty. So much so that he expects Esau to treat him As though he is, he can't see past his own sin, so doesn't think his older brother will be able to either. Now, as we'll discover in a couple of weeks, when Pastor Roger preaches, he's dead wrong. But before he meets his brother face-to-face, he needs to meet God face-to-face. And before he meets God face-to-face, God brings him low. The deception of the past It catches up to Jacob's conscience. His schemes have been absolutely fruitless. He spent 20 years of hardship, and now Jacob supposes he's facing the threat of vengeance. And it brings Jacob to an end of himself, and he cries out to God in verses 9 to 12 in the longest prayer in Genesis. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Listen to what he says. I am not worthy of the least 
of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Here is humility. Here God has brought Jacob low. Here Jacob admits that it wasn't his schemes that brought him to this place. It was the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh. Twenty years ago, all he had was a stick of wood in his hand, and now he's going back to the promised land of Fortune 500 company. You could do this, but God. And so I hope you see in this that Yahweh humbles the schemes of our old identity. If it wasn't for God, Jacob would have nothing. Nothing for all of his deceiving and cheating and wrestling and so on. He would have nothing. And he does this so that we might cry out to him. And in Jacob's prayer, we are shown how. The kids were messing around with some, not messing around, I shouldn't put it that way. They were uh, working on being educated in the French language. Hmm? Didn't want to offend my wife. She's, they're not messing around, I'm teaching them French. They were learning French. And as anyone who has ever studied a foreign language knows, it's incredibly difficult at the beginning to learn how to engage with the language. And you learn the common phrases, you know, bonjour, ça va, and you, you know, you maybe get three phrases in and that's it. You run out of things to say. Well, if prayer feels like that, if prayer feels like a foreign language to you and you don't, you can't pray very long without running out of things to say, then let this teach you how to talk to God when he graciously blows up the sinful schemes in our lives so that we cry out to him. Not only does he do this, he actually teaches us how to talk to him when this happens, when we are in these moments of severe mercies. And so let me point out a a few components here of how Jacob prays. Notice that in his humility, Jacob appeals to God's character to his steadfast love and faithfulness. We cry out to God on the basis of who he is. And these themes of steadfast love and faithfulness, they are all throughout the scriptures. There's whole psalms where a line is read and the people would say his steadfast love endures forever. And another is read and they would say his steadfast love endures forever. It's inexhaustible. He keeps his word. He keeps his covenant forever. And so we cry out to God on the basis of who he is. And notice also that in his humility, Jacob appeals to God's works. In verse 9, he looks back to his grandfather and his father's life, which is an implicit recalling of all that Yahweh had done for them. And then he reflects on God's works in his own life. In verse 10, I I crossed the Jordan with my staff and now I've become two camps. We cry out to God on the basis of what he has done. And notice in his humility, Jacob appeals to God's word. He does this in verse 9 and verse 12. You who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered 
from multitude. He is just taking what Yahweh has said and praying it back to him. And so we cry out to God on the basis of who he is and of what he has done and of what he has said. And that shapes then our petitions. As it shapes Jacob's in verse 11, he takes all of this into account and then he says, please deliver me from my brother from the hand of Esau. Here, and here is an honest comment, for I fear him. If God doesn't come to Jacob's rescue to ensure the safety of his offspring, Yahweh's word won't come to pass. Yahweh's past works will have been rendered meaningless. And Yahweh's character will be called into question. And this isn't Jacob trying to play gotcha with God, as though he's trying to back God into a corner. This is a prayer of humble, desperate faith, which Yahweh has brought Jacob to by frustrating the schemes of his old identity. By giving him a conscience that responds to sin with guilt and shame. And Jacob responds, and I can think of no way to pray that honors God more than our coming to an end of ourselves and crying out to him on the basis of his character, his works, and his word. And church, we have so much more revealed to us to go on than what Jacob did. We have seen the steadfast love and faithfulness of God and his willingness to give sinners like us his kingdom. We have seen the greatest of God's works in the cross and empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have in your possession all 66 books of the Bible as his complete word to us, all that we need for life and faith. And so praise God for his severe mercies, for the times and ways he humbles the schemes of our old identity so that we are left with nothing else but to cry out to him. And in this, God is preparing us for the new identity he is willing to give us. But there's more work to be done in this demolition and reconstruction project. God has dealt with the structure of Jacob's schemes, but underneath those is the foundation of Jacob's ambition. God doesn't only humble us in the outworking of our ambition, which are our plans and efforts. God humbles us in the very ambition that drives them. He humbles us in the schemes of our old identity so that we cry out to him, and he humbles us in the ambition of our old identity so that we cling to him. God brings us low at the very core of what drives us. That he might set us on a new path and a new way as new people. God humbles us in the scheme, the ambition of our old identity so that we cling to him. The setup for this comes in verses 13 to 24, which end up with Jacob alone in the camp with Esau and his 400 men on their way. And I'm not going to spend much time on this setup here, but I'll, I'll just make a couple of comments. Before Esau arrives in verses 12 to 21, what Jacob does is try to establish favor with Esau by giving Esau multiple favors. And there's a similar wordplay in the Hebrew along these lines with seeking favor and the gift. And so Jacob sets up this parade, if you were doing the math, and if you were, I think you're a little bit freakish, but anyway, he sets up this parade of 550 animals, an extravagant gift, and he spaces them out 
so as to soften Esau with wave after wave of restitution to assuage his guilty conscience and the fact that he ripped Esau off. Now, along with this, he is unable to sleep, no doubt with worry, as we all experience from time to time. And so in verses 22 to 24, he gets up, he takes his wives, his his two female servants, his sons, and he crosses the ford of the Jabbok, which is a play on Jacob's word, and you can see that for yourself. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Now, some see Jacob's actions in these verses as the same old Jacob trying to maneuver his way out of trouble. Some see Jacob's actions in these verses as a wise expression of faith. You can wrestle that one through on your own because I'm more interested in how it sets up the wrestling match to follow. As already said, on the way out of the promised land, fleeing from Esau, Jacob was alone in the night with absolutely nothing, sleeping on the ground with a stone by his head when God appeared to him in a dream. And here he's on the way back into the promised land, fearing Esau alone in the night. When a man comes out of nowhere and takes a hold of him, emerging suddenly like a ninja in the dark. Verse 24 tells us that Jacob and the man wrestled all night. And being pitch black, Jacob does not seem to know initially who it is that he contends with. One writer notes the following aspect of this encounter. First, there is ambiguity. We're not told at first who the identity of this man is. But by the end, it's very clear that Jacob wrestled with God. Second, I quote, God's presence means no ease of conflict. They wrestled all night. Jacob's chest would have heaved, his muscles burned, sweat dripping down his back, fingers exhausted from grasping at any way to get the upper hand, just as he did back in the womb with his brother Esau. Third, I quote again, there is a mystery about God's presence that defies human understanding. You might have questions about this text that I cannot answer. Jacob cannot see God nor know his name in order to control the situation, which doesn't mean he doesn't try, showcasing forth the condescension of God. As this wrestling match goes on for hours in verse 25, dawn is drawing near and it says, the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Jacob is no match for God in strength, of course, just as None of my three boys are a match for me, but I play at their level. At any moment, though, of my choosing in a rough and tumble, I could have the upper hand. Now, the older they get, the more skeptical about this they become. And at some point, that won't be true anymore, especially because it's teenager Eve in our house. Our oldest turns 13 tomorrow. But for the time being, I maintain that it most definitely is the case that if I want to take them, I can take them. And guess what I'm going to be doing this afternoon? (laughs) How much more is this true in God's wrestling match with Jacob? With the one hand, God provides Jacob life and strength so that he can wrestle with him. But all it takes is a touch from the other hand. And all of Jacob's wrestling comes to a howling end. That's exactly what happens in verse 25. 
God touches, man touches his hip socket. Contest over. The finger of God undoes the strongest part of Jacob's physique. One wrestling coach puts it this way, your hips are the strongest part of your body. Don't leave them behind. That's what wrestlers use. Drive everything from the hips. Jacob is undone. And then the man said, let me go. The day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. All he can do now is hang on. As Hosea 12.4 reads, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. And this is where we see God humble ambition so that we cling to him. All his life, Jacob has fought for God's blessing, a good and right desire. But he has schemed and cheated to secure the blessing, a sinful, self-centered, wrong-headed approach. He wrestled with Esau, he wrestled with his blind father, he wrestled with Laban, and now he wrestles with God. One writer says, Jacob's remarkable encounter reminds saints that they too may encounter God in ambiguity, even in apparent hostility, in mystery cloaked in darkness, and in such humility that he restrains himself from dominating their lives. But he goes on to say, when they stop wrestling with God and start clinging to him, they discover that he has been there for their good, to bless them. We cannot strong arm God into giving us what we want, even if what we want is his blessing. You can try if you like, but he will humble you, as he does with Jacob. But the humbling is not even yet complete. When Jacob stops wrestling for God's blessing and starts clinging with a request for God's blessing, God asks him this piercing, piercing question. And the calm after the chaos of the contest, the following breaks the silence. What is your name? And the last time someone asked Jacob his identity was all the way back in Genesis 27. Disguised as his older brother to deceive his blind father, Isaac asked, Who are you, my son? Jacob replied, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And again, Isaac asked, Are you really my son, Esau? And Jacob answered, I am. When Esau discovered the treachery, he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has cheated me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And here, in a wrestling match with God that he cannot win, now helpless in the contest with hip out of joint, only able to painfully cling in the hopes of a blessing, he has come face to face with this truth, and God asks him, what is your name? He's not asking for the information on this birth certificate. He's asking, who are you? What is your nature? What is your character? And the patriarch can answer only with one word, Jacob. Schemer. Deceiver. Cheater. Swindler. 
As one writer puts it, Jacob confesses his sins in one word. And God holds up a mirror before us to reveal our true nature, our old identity. There are all sorts of different ways that we could respond. We could deny the reflection looking back at us. We can run from the reflection that's looking back at us. We can paint a false portrait over top of the reflection looking back at us, or we could throw a fit and try to destroy the mirror that is reflecting our true nature back to us. But none of them will change the reality the mirror shows. Only God can do this. And the only way to experience that change is to look back at that reflection and own it. And then receive the grace of God as a gift. Yes, that's me, faithless. Yes, that's me, cowardly. Yeah, that's me, idolater. Yes, that's me, adulterer. Yes, that's me, liar. That's me, addict. That's me, abuser. We own it. When we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift us up. In another way, we've heard what that looks like this morning. We heard a young man express in public testimony that he is a sinner in need of God's grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And very shortly, you will witness his baptism, which communicates among many realities that the old Brandon has died, and that in Christ he is a new creation. That's what Jacob experiences here, confessing his sin by acknowledging his name, and then, then and only then, does Jacob receive what he has striven for, a new identity and the blessing of Yahweh. God humbles us in the schemes and ambitions of our old identities before blessing us to prevail in our new identities. And in the humbling, all we can do is cry out to God All we can do is cling to God such that the transformation and blessing is seen as the work of God. And God says to Jacob, your name immediately, immediately, God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. I can't help but ache with longing at the prospect of this as spoken by our Lord Jesus in the New Testament in the church to Smyrna. In Revelation 2.17, he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, which we can only do by the strength of God's grace. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. We just long to receive such a gift from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think of a better gift than to be given a new name, a new identity, than by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who conquers, he said to the church in Sardis, will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. 
I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's what God offers to us. A new identity in Jesus Christ. And if he is demolishing and renovating to give us the fullness of that, then friends, be glad and press into what God is doing. Wonder with Jacob that in any wrestlings you might be going through, that God himself is at work in your life. Emboldened, suspecting that he is wrestling with more than a mere man, Jacob goes on in verse 29 and he says, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask your name? And there he blessed him. And then from this, Jacob concludes that indeed he has wrestled with God, just as he was told. And the name can also mean that God fights, which he does for his people. And so with wonder, Jacob names the place in verse 21, Penuel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet, wonder of wonders, my life has been delivered. He's had a personal encounter with Yahweh and lived, which though severe, was by all means merciful. His defeat was his victory. His humbling was his exaltation. His crippling was his healing, as it always has been and always will be with respect to the kingdom of God. Rick Buck, the responsible for leadership of our fellowship of churches, the central region of which we are part, he gave a message at the annual general meeting this past week, and he said, he, he conveyed this. He said, some people have ambitions to further their own kingdoms. Some people have ambitions to further God's kingdom for him, as though we think God needs us. And then some people have ambition for God to further his kingdom through them. And only the latter is appropriate. And the way to do so is with a weakness that is better than strength. Jacob's experience here communicates the entry paradigm for the kingdom of God and the advancement strategy for the kingdom of God. It's strength perfected in weakness. It's the treasure of the gospel communicated by cracked clay vessels. It's the sufficiency of God's grace shining through our limitations. Ambition to experience God's blessing and to communicate the wonder of God's blessing through Jesus is fantastic, but may it be rescued from our sinful, worldly ambition. And the world will tempt us and whisper to us and woo us that this is done by strength, whereby we serve a crucified Lord who offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Our blessed Lord disarmed rulers and authorities by triumphing over them. Where? At the cross. So there is death before resurrection. There is suffering before glory. There is wrestling before rest. As one songwriter puts it, echoing the experiences of severe mercy that God's people have long experienced. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. After a long night of wrestling, where Jacob was humbled in the dust of the ground, 
He arose with a limp in his step, but no doubt a spring in his soul and wonder in his eyes as he leaves this place a new man with a new name at the break of a new day. And I hope that you can leave here this morning saying something similar.